Hello and welcome to the COG podcast, a podcast by the Quality of Government Institute at the University of Gothenburg. In this podcast, we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments worldwide. Hosting this show is Professor Victor Lapuente, and in this episode, he will talk to Tomila Lankina, Professor of International Relations at London School of Economics and Political Science, and one of the greatest experts on current Russia, thanks to her knowledge of Russian history. Tomila has worked on democracy and authority, mass protests and historical drivers of human capital and political regime change in Russia and in other countries. She has also analyzed the propaganda and disinformation campaign in the wake of Russia's annexation of Crimea and aggression in Ukraine. In this episode, Victor and Tomila discuss Tomila's latest book, The Estate Origins of Democracy in Russia, from Imperial Borgios to Post-Communist Middle Class, to try to understand the war resistance within Russia today, looking at both history and the current day. We hope you enjoy the episode. And don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you do. Welcome to the podcast of the Quality of Government Institute, where we have conversations with well-known experts and try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. My name is Victor Lapointe, and today in the podcast we are privileged to have Tomila Lankina, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics. She got her PhD from the University of Oxford and studied in Uzbekistan and Tufts University in the US. She has had academic appointments at Humboldt University in Berlin, Stanford University, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., the Montfort University in Leicester, and now in London. Welcome. Tomila, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. When the war in Ukraine started, a lot of the focus went to the puzzle trying to understand the behavior of Putin. But I always thought that more puzzling was the behavior of the thousands of Russians who resisted Putin's decisions, who demonstrated in the streets, who were imprisoned. And, and early on, I always found that more puzzling that uh, the behavior of Putin is the behavior of Navalny and opposition leaders like him. You are poisoned by the regime, you, you survive miraculously, and you come back to, to your own country to be jailed by the despot. And then I discovered Tomila Lankina's work, first her paper in American Political Science Review with Alexander Liebman in, in 2021, and then this fantastic and original book that I would like to recommend you today. The State Origins of uh, Democracy in Russia from Imperial Bourgeois to Post-Communist Middle Class, where she draws the long-term patterns of reproduction of social structure in Russia, in particular the middle class, the professional class, the doctors, the teachers, the lawyers, from the Tsarist times to the present, and why these legacies matter for democracy, development, and social inequalities. One of the reasons to have her in the podcast is that Everyone nowadays try to explain the beliefs, values, and actions of, of one single Putin. But here I am with a person who is explaining the beliefs, values, and actions of the thousands of, let's say, sorry for the simplification, Navalny's or people who believe in, in democracy. And, and I think that the, the villian tree has not allowed us to see the forest of heroes that uh, are in Russia. And I think your, your book puts the focus on those uh, heroes. I am making, obviously, an oversimplification of your work, 
but you try to explain, unlike many other people who are more focusing on the submission of the Russian people to their leaders, you are explaining the resilient minority or not so minority, the resilience of, of the Russians. Why did you want to study this resilience of the Russian people in the, in the first place? Thank you very much. First of all, thank you very much for a very refreshing question because I am and rather angle on the, on the question. I do also find it frustrating, this focus on Putin, the persona of leaders, and indeed, even if there is a kind of social emphasis on, on societal basis of support, there's a lot of behavioral work where we kind of work with conventional socioeconomic categories of um, occupation, university education, gender, etc., to understand the basis of support to the Putin regime or challenges to, to the autocracy. I find it frustrating because I think we're missing a very, very important part of the story. And I locate this uh, small sort of minority of um, the middle class or the activist segment of Russian society in the historical legacies of the construction of, you know, the proto-middle class and, and the bourgeoisie, which take us back to really the imperial period, a pre-communist period even. And contrary to sort of the conventional paradigm, which tells us that the Bolshevik revolution was the great new revolutionary new dawn and, and rupture with the past, I actually see significant element of continuity in the reproduction of social structure from before the revolution. And that's a paradigm, and I can go into that, that has um, not really, we haven't seen much of that for a variety of reasons, because we have from the communist period, we are socialized in this paradigm or notion of the communism as ushering in a new society, which of course with its own set of social structures and social inequalities, but focused on the institutions of the communist regime. Whereas I take us back to the institution of Sassovia. In English, it's translated as estate. A lot of people are puzzled when they hear estate. They don't quite understand what it is. And I hope that with uh, my book, we'll have an introduction of this very, very important um, and neglected institution of social stratification in late imperial Russia and its significance in the kind of social divisions that we observe now, whether we talk about support for Putin or support uh, for or challenge to the war in Ukraine. I see very much the same cleavage that we observed in late imperial society on the eve of the revolution, where we had about um, maybe 15, 20% of what I call educated estates and the vast majority of illiterate peasantry. And as I argue and demonstrate in my book with a lot of census, qualitative archival and other data, this is a chasm that never quite disappeared. I think this is a very novel view because uh, everybody tries to understand contemporary Russia or many people at least looking at history. But as you say, they look at the history of power. They look at how despotic uh, Russian uh, rulers have been from Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century up to Putin. They have had mindset of expansionist imperialism and colonialization and so on. They are looking at this dark side, but you look at the bright side. You look at the, not at the seeds of Putinism in, in imperial Russia, but also the seeds of, of democracy or democratic resistance. And as you have just said now, imperial Tsarist society in Russia was not like we depicted. And 
normally and there were quite large group of uh, educated people with uh, let's say liberal liberal values just to to simplify the the question is like how would that society compare to western counterpart at that time because i think that uh, a lot of the literature has focused on the netherlands and britain as kind of uh, the societies in which uh, democratic values started to spread and from there to the rest of uh, of europe and the rest would be more backward societies Maybe that's an Anglo-Saxon bias in the sense of the researchers and Anglo-Saxon or Dutch researchers or people who knew a lot about the Netherlands were the first ones or have been the dominant figures on, on this period. And, and maybe we have a bias, but I would like to ask you, which would be the equivalent in the West of the Russian society, let's say, of the 19th century that you describe in your book? Thank you again for asking very, very important questions. So in my book, I draw on the work of revisionist historians, for instance, Boris Mironov, who is a very, very prominent, well-known also in the West historian, who have challenged these na narratives and notions of the backwardness of, of Russian society in the late imperial period. And he, and I won't be able to quote these statistics now, but he provides quite compelling evidence that Russia was very comparable to perhaps not, not England, although even if we look at schooling, for instance, there were significant gaps in the quality of schooling and the, the years of schooling between the different social classes, which was actually quite similar in a lot of ways to what we observed in Russia, where only a small minority of people really had access to, for instance, secondary education. And in Russia, we had prestigious sort of secondary schools called gymnasia, which provided absolutely excellent uh, education. So I think countries like Spain, for instance, Southern European countries emerge as, or Italy, for instance, different parts of Italy, emerge as very comparable to Russia. If we look at statistics for education and also the social distinctions between groups of people who had access to secondary or university education, by the way, was only accessible to a small minority of people. If we talk about 19th century, even in the in the developed, more developed parts of countries of Western Europe. So Russia was in some ways quite comparable and was really catching up. In fact, there were discussions about introducing universal public schooling that would be accessible to all free of charge. That never happened before the revolution. But there were excellent schools that catered to these groups that I call the educated estates. And they were aristocracy, which uh, comprised less than 2% of the Russian population and personal nobles. There were the clergy, the other estate, uh, which was comparable to the nobility, in fact, higher, even more educated, 95% of the, those in the clergy estate on the eve of the revolution were fully literate. And um, about 90% of aristocracy and personal nobles were. And then you have the merchants uh, who were the bourgeoisie, the people with newly acquired rather than hereditary wealth, often very entrepreneurial, who were becoming professionals in a modern sense. They wanted their children to acquire education in the modern professions. And they were able to afford these expensive elite gymnasia, which habitually were attended by aristocracy. 
So we see this expansion of access to schooling by not just which had been accessible to um, aristocracy, but also it's becoming more accessible to these urban groups and the other mysterious urban group, which people have really not talked very much about, but in my analysis it emerges as the kind of core of the modern middle class and the bourgeoisie in the imperial period is the so-called Mishani. It's very difficult to translate this term. It has been translated as petite bourgeoisie in Russia and that under the Soviets, it acquired kind of derogatory connotations of a group that's mired in kitsch and bad taste and is only concerned about money. But these were actually traders, artisans, exactly the groups that from the comparative politics literature emerges sort of the bourgeoisie that often sides with those elements in, in society that do want enfranchisement and do want greater liberties and self-governance. And that is also what I find in my work. And Mishani were more than 10% of the imperial population, second only to peasants who were the largest, nearly 80% of the state of peasants of the imperial population and remained overwhelmingly illiterate, it must be said, even in 1917. And I think, and I trace the significance of those cleavages for understanding both the kind of impulses of democratic support and opposition to democracy in present-day Russia. I think a great idea of yours is to keep that term, both in your article and your book, the Mishane, in order to show and to, to show the possibilities that this term also might have to be to understand other puzzling democratizing movements in other parts of uh, Europe especially parts like you have mentioned in Southern and Continental Europe, where they had legacies of these uh, feudal states and how they did not play maybe the backward uh, role that we normally associate with them, but quite the opposite. They could be promoting these liberal values. I think also a qualitative evidence that uh, Russia was highly educated uh, during the 19th century is that it's, uh, I cannot find any other nation who created greater writers uh, than, than Russian uh, and um, Tolstoy, Chekhov, uh, Dostoyevsky and, and so on. Actually, some of them you cite in, in your book. So there should be certain mass of uh, educated people, not only a percentage of literacy, but also some intangible quality in the values transmitted among those people to produce these uh, great novels and literature of uh, Russian realism. Someone said that uh, from the Jewish Bible, probably there has not been a group of books with uh, the same ability to penetrate in the human soul as the collective work of the Russian realists. And I tend to agree as a big fan of that, of that literature. So I am really happy to find not only an explanation for the Navalny's, but also an explanation for the Tolstoy's in Chekhov and Dostoyevskina so-called for many backward uh, society. But let's talk about one precise moment in the, in the 19th century, the, the reforms of Russia in 1860s. Why are they so important in your narrative? Actually, some senses may be more important than the, than the or overlooking comparison, at least to the overstudied uh, Russian revolution of 1917. Absolutely. The 1860s reforms were extremely important and, and are important in my analysis, but for slightly different reasons for which most people 
sort of highlight their role. So most people are aware that there was emancipation of the serfs. That's the most important element of these so-called great reforms. Other aspect that people talk about is the Ziemstva, that is the reforms of local self-governance, whereby new institutions of self-government were, were set up in rural areas in particular. What people often forget is the secondary byproduct of emancipation meant that the uh, landed aristocracy were losing, and that is captured very well in some of those classic novels of Russian uh, literary greats that you took. They were losing the material foundations of their established leisurely existence. And what I trace in my work is the transition of these and that is also a misconception to argue that they were idlers. They were not, because habitually aristocratic titles also came with an expectation of service to the czars. And service came, came with an expectation of superb education, for which children from the ages of six or seven were attending preparatory schools, tutors in the homes, and the exam to enter these aristocratic schools were very, very rigorous. So Habitually, aristocrats were in service to the czar, to the, uh, to the crown. They were essentially kind of proto-professionals in that sense, highly educated public civil servants, uh, not all of them, of course. But what I'm also observing is this movement towards professionalization of aristocracy and other habitually high-status groups like clergy, for instance which also had superior rights compared to, for instance, the urban groups and certainly the peasants. So what we observe is these habitually educated groups, especially aristocrats who were now in need of material and new sources of material sustenance. And by the way, I observed the same processes in Hungary. One of the cases I compare in the, in the final chapter of my book is, is with Hungary, very similar process of professionalization of arist aristocracy. Um, so they were becoming doctors, they were becoming teachers, they were entering these, and in the case of uh, clergy, veterinarians. Why veterinarians? Well, because the clergy in rural areas especially were expected to perform many of the services of the state because Russian state, contrary to widespread myths that it was omnipresent, were actually very thinly reaching into the provinces. So provinces like this region of Samara, which I focus very much on in my book, were essentially very highly self-governed. And so you had these kind of remnants of feudal state and feudal governance in the form of Saslovia or estates kind of transitioning into the modern professional class. So the 1860s reforms were very, very important because they created these additional incentives for the habitually wealthy to acquire kind of gainful employment in the modern professions. And then you also have the entrepreneurial class, the Mishani and the merchants who are trying to elbowing their way into the schools that used to be colonized by the aristocracy and clergy, by the way, also they had their own seminaries, which became also kind of incubators of the modern professions in medicine, veterinary, uh, sciences and the like. So these reforms were very important because they ushered in this modernity, very similar, in fact, to processes that were occurring elsewhere in Europe, uh, perhaps slightly earlier, but Russia was certainly catching up. 
Yeah, one of the interesting things of your book is that you also debunk this myth that tends to see the Russian church as uh, extremely conservative and authoritarian, and obviously something like that is going on. Uh, and we can see that in the association between the Putin and the Patriarch Kirill and so on. And But you are making a, a nuanced distinction, in, uh, as you have been mentioning now, about the role of the clergy and how they, some of their members could uh, actually be in, this, in the other side, in, let's say, in the proto-bourgeois, proto-democratic side. But anyway, which would be your response to this general view of one of the reasons why Eastern Europe in general and, and the lands that were under influence of the Eastern Church instead of the Western Church had been more authoritarian, basically because in the, in the West, in Western Europe, we had this separation between the church and the state quite clearly, while in Eastern Europe and, and in Russia, what we have seen historically is a, a stronger links between the, the state and the Orthodox Church that have remained until nowadays, and, and even until recently people were saying that there were many KGB agents among in the church and, and so on. And um, So which is the role of the church in general and or these different groups that you are exploring in your book? So the church, uh, my analysis does not um, intrinsically, does not really wade in so much into these debates about the significance of orthodoxy as traditionally understood in the church. It highlights more when it comes to the orthodox church, the significance that the estate of clergy, which habitually they were supposed to wear the sort of the mantle of the priest and you were if you your father was a priest you were born into that estate Sasovia of the clergy but many were abandoning those robes and drugs because they wanted they didn't want to follow in their father's calling and in fact many were also joining the revolutionary movement of the left kind many were also becoming the kind of more traditional bourgeois professionals that is the aspect i highlight but i also draw attention to in the literature, perhaps slightly neglected facet of the plurality of different faiths and denominations. And there's a book called um, something like Russia's Lost Reformation or Forgotten Reformation or something like that. So they were pro proto-Protestant uh, or native quasi-Protestant groups, for instance, like the Molokans, the so-called milk drinkers. Uh, this is a sect where my own family comes comes from on, on my paternal side. And they were sort of often heretics. They were called sects in the Russian imperial designation. And they moved to the in frontier areas where they often had the status of freer peasants compared to the serfs in other you know, sort of black earth and, and areas of, of central Russia. So they had, they had greater freedoms because they were encouraged or pushed out into the frontier. There were also old believers who were, there was, a, there was a schism with the Russian Orthodox Church that went back centuries. And eventually, although they were accepted by the church, they were very different for one reason or another. They were considered to be very entrepreneurial. In the region of Samara that investigating, I came across a fascinating archive of old believer families, and they essentially ran the grain trade in this um, cities of Samara, which was called uh, Chicago on the Volga. It was a booming provincial region. So, and then there were Jews, of course, with the 
establishment of the railway, there was a lot of movement and a lot of trade that kind of linked different parts of the Russian Empire with different Poles, Polish exiles, Jewish community, Germans. There were German settlers as well in the various regions. So, and together with the educated Russian Orthodox, traditionally high status groups, whether aristocrats or clergy, they formed together this kind of very nebulous, but at the same time, definable group of the proto-middle class and proto-bourgeoisie. There was this kind of very exciting process in the final quarter of the 19th century and towards uh, leading up to the Bolshevik Revolution that was really brewing in the consolidation of this new middle class vested with liberal ideas and um, you know supportive of different kind of democratic impulses within late imperial russia and what i then show in the book that it just it didn't disappear it's a big myth that these uh, groups were simply obliterated and um, and lost all relevance after 1917 yeah one of the most intriguing things from your book is precisely this the role of the religious minorities you have mentioned the protestant communities and the, and the jewish community and One of the things that I was wondering is, which is the mechanism through which these minorities are uh, played a role? Is through the Max Weber mechanism of, okay, we have a, uh, through a religious dogma, they were fostering kind of the spirit of capitalism, or quite the opposite, is more like, and I think that is, I don't know if that is where you are siding, but at least uh, it emerged that you also give importance to this idea that not actually, it's it's a more materialist or explanation along the lines of the modernization theory that they actually had uh, economic development and that is what uh, fostered their, their role. So it's their, it's their values uh, or, or their money what, what played a role here or the education. It's certainly a combination of all three. And we trace some of these distinctions. We, we were able to trace to a certain extent with our, in our paper, APSR paper, with Alexander Liebman, where we, for instance, discern the preservation of entrepreneurial values, which we, we can trace back to the merchant and Mishani, Mishani Sassovia. In particular, for instance, there is some data that um, we used looking at the late Soviet and post-Soviet ability to or willingness to establish one's own business. And we link that to the presence or the, the share of these Mishani merchant communities in late imperial Russia. But we also, of course, the, the values are important in a Weberian sense. For instance, the, the different quasi-Protestant communities that, that I discuss um, or allude to in my book, they were very much very similar to the, the Protestant, uh, the sort of espoused similar values in a Weberian sense. And also, let's not forget that German settlers, whom Catherine the Great invited in the late 18th century to settle in different parts of the Volga, they also diffused their way of life. And their way of life, of course, came from their religion. They didn't indulge in uh, conspicuous consumption. They didn't drink very much. They were model farmers. They saved, they prospered, and they lived good lives. And, and, and that sort of diffused to the communities around. And because of their emphasis on reading of the Bible for both girls and boys, they were habitually literate. And that we also observe with um, old believer families to a certain extent, whom 
in the Weberian sense also, they appear in some discussions of, you know, were they like the Protestants in, in, in Weberian work or not, old believers? There is some debate about that, but certainly there were similarities between uh, their emphasis on thrift, um, education as well, and that ostensibly played a role. So there, it's a mix of education as well, which doesn't come necessarily from religious values, because in, in my analysis, we're talking about estates that include both the clergy and the, the urban entrepreneurial groups for whom acquiring the trappings of education was simply an elevation of status and bringing them closer to this higher echelon of, you know, aristocrats and personal nobles. So it was very much the story as well of, to a certain extent, of modernization, but also combined with some of these um, religious entrepreneurial values that also kind of are nurtured and engendered within particular communities and within families. And for the Jewish populations, we know of the kind of the discrimination that they faced in the Russian Empire, and that too incentivized them to join the merchant estate, for instance, for which you had to pay guild fees and, and acquire higher education by way of kind of social advancement as well to deal with this kind of social stigma and discrimination as a kind of compensatory mechanism. So that was also at play. And I'm looking at the combination rather than having a simplistic picture that tells us that one particular group was the engine of the creation of the middle class. I'm looking at this kind of mishmash of processes that all came together to also create a kind of very vibrant public sphere, which we don't talk about very much. And we, you know, in, in the Russian case, uh, who would have thought that the schools, these gymnasia, elite secondary schools, they were part, very important part of the public sphere and uh, debate and discussion, and they were linked with all kinds of civic groups and societies in the provinces, not just in the capitals or imperial metropolis. And then over that vibrant society comes the Bolshevik Revolution, and the usual interpretation is that the Soviets completely destroyed the society. They created a sort of a tabula rasa, a blank slate. They changed everything. But you, in your book, argue that that is not the case, that there are things that they did not change. And which are those things that uh, they were not able to change? So what they were not able to change was due to the force of circumstances. They very quickly realized, the, the Bolsheviks, that to fulfill the kind of fantastical proclamations about building a new society from scratch upon the ashes of the old, modernizing it, you know, electrification, the space project, and all those things, the rail projects, are simply unachievable without reliance on these same groups that they were trying to exterminate according to the kind of Marxist-Leninist dogma. So this bourgeoisie, what they called bourgeoisie, were exactly those educated estates, plus chunks of wealthy peasantry who were also kind of en route to becoming, some of them, the most entrepreneurial ones, were en route to joining these urban bourgeois groups. And so they were the ones who were the, were the professionals. So when we, it's a big, it's a myth to consider the rapid creation of a new Soviet middle class, because if we look at lit, literacy statistics, including in the 
a so-called 1937 Stalin census, which was held with great fanfare. And, and then um, the results came in and the Stalin and his henchmen were absolutely aghast at the results because it re revealed a country steeped in the same social divisions that there were before. And by the way, with Protestants continuing to be more literate than the Orthodox Christians and, you know, some of the same patterns that we observed in late imperial society, especially women, highly literate. And so this kind of small minority of educated groups who were, you know, entrepreneurs or professionals, they were the ones who were invited in some ways, sometimes at gunpoint, to become the, the teachers in the Soviet schools and the engineers and participate in the space project, sometimes in the gulag. What I also observe, and that is, and I'm drawing on the revisionist historiography of scholars who've worked with archives that have opened since the fall of the Soviet Union, to demonstrate also what was happening in the Gulag. What is the Gulag? We're actually rethinking now. And we also know from uh, Solzhenitsyn's work that they were the so-called Sharashki, those places where scientists would work and enjoyed relatively good food rations and were in relatively privileged position. I say relatively privileged because we're talking about the gulag. This is basically slave labor, but still there were these hierarchies. And if you were a doctor in the gulag, that's what considered to that was considered to be a highly desirable thing to do because you were spared the break back, you know, labor of felling trees, etc. Because they needed somebody to treat people to preserve this this labor force. So all these hierarchies in some ways were preserved. And then when people ask me, well, what about you looking at a period of, um, you know, 100 years and of course 70 years from the revolution, what are the causal mechanisms? Surely the people were repressed, they were moved around, deported. And um, here I bring in the role of the families in this kind of intergenerational transmission of values, aspirations and in some ways even material capital because we, we you know i unearth new evidence of remittances from western relatives all the way through the 1920s 1930s and even 1940s during the war who were sending packages and um, small currency infusions to their relatives back in the soviet union these new social hierarchies that you are illuminating in your book, uh, some of them are quite novel. And to me, it was quite puzzled by this distinction that you make uh, within the middle class. You talk that there are two types, two prongs of middle class, one created by the state, by the Soviets, and the other that this one that has survived across time from the imperial Tsarist. And which are the differences between these two types of middle classes and why this matters to understand the fate of democracy in, in Russia? So in making this argument, I draw on Alexander Gershenkron. We know that this concept of late developing states and some other scholars like Bryn Rosenfeld, she also talked about the kind of how autocracies create the state-dependent middle class. And uh, I kind of pick those, uh, pick up those arguments and take them forward and say, well, we forget about this other old middle class. So in looking at the significance of the communist state or present day states like China or in developing countries, the states that take the lead in advancing modernization of either the countries that had been left behind uh, in their development, so the argument is that these states, because they take lead in, in the developmental agenda, they create large industrial conglomerates, 
they create large bloated bureaucracies and they rapidly create this kind of new middle class, often of peasant origin. And that is very much the story in the Soviet Union indeed. So that is the so-called new middle class. But when we look at that side of the picture, we'll forget that there are also these so-called old middle class groups. And of course, I use it in a stylized way because of course there was intermarriage and intermixing and the process is very complex and very fluid. But the old privileged groups who were might have lost everything in a material sense after the revolution, but they, they were highly educated and they transmitted that to the, their children. And if you trace in a kind of genealogical sense what their grandchildren, great-grandchildren are doing now, we can trace the kind of progression from, let's say, the Mishanin or Mishanka into the school teacher in the Soviet period, then into the professoriate. And then in the present day, you know, they might be the descendants might be PR people, thinkers, creatives, professoriate. They're not the kind of underprivileged, semi-precariat groups that we see now, for instance, fighting in Ukraine, the or people who are now in the National Guard in, you know, harassing protesters in, in Russia. These, these individuals who join these kind of state-dependent, often security institutions, they sort of highly dependent on state pensions and perks, etc. They do not have the human capital to join the what I call the autonomous professions that have greater autonomy, lawyers, uh, doctors, engineers, or do not have human capital to, to, to join these kind of creative or even to creative the creative class or indeed now to uh, you know, emigrate and uh, move to European countries in the case of real, in this situation of massive repression. So your hypothesis would be that the cheerleaders of Putin that uh, fill the rallies in favor of Putin with colorful dresses and the policemen in dark suits that repress uh, the democratic opposition members in the streets, these people would come more from this state-driven middle class or from the lower classes, let's say while the vast majority of the people who would be in the, in the opposition or would be in favor of a democracy in Russia would come from this, genealogically, would come from those families, middle-class periods, Tsarist Russia. So in a way, yes, it sounds like it's at the risks of simplifying. We do find, if we look at the regional data, and this is a, the kind of angle that allows my co-author and me, Alexander Liebman, and I to analyze and tease out these variations. So we find we have census data for from the 1897 late imperial uh, Russian census. This is the most comprehensive census that covered the entire period, the entire territory of the present day Russian Federation. And we link those data to, for instance, there are some measures of demand for and supply of independent media in the regions. Granted that we have data for free media for 1999, this is well before the kind of the Putin era, but still these data allow us to show that there are some, even in 99, which is almost 10 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we could still trace the links between the presence of the bourgeoisie in the regions, uh, in the gubernian districts of Imperial Russia, and the present day or in, in late 1990s demand for and supply of free media which means that there are more people who are 
running or creating these kind of independent media outlets and a greater readership and greater demand for media. And there are also all kinds of other measures, for instance, propensity to protest. And I've uh, gathered data over the years on protest. All things go together. There are particularly liberal Russian regions that have habitually, whether we look at measures of civil society or measures of free media, etc., or support for democracy, etc., there are particular regions. Samara is one of them. So it's not just Moscow and St. Petersburg. There are regions like Perm, Novosibirsk, which in the imperial period, right, there are particular areas of Russia that had urban centers with developed trading, uh, perhaps hubs, particularly Samara. Samara is a very good example of a region on the Volga that was linked well before the revolution with railways to other major cities. So, so that's the kind of story, I think, in, in a very simplistic, stylized way we could or argument we could make. And certainly the people who come to pro-Putin rallies, they are often from these large public sector organizations. Often school teachers are asked to come and participate in these sham expressions of support for autocracy because otherwise they're threatened of, to, with dismissal from their jobs. Whereas the more high status professionals don't, don't have those same dependencies on the state. And, and people self-select into these kind of more autonomous professions. So it's also a, a story of how one is able to channel one's human capital into areas of professional life where one could be more autonomous. And we're see, certainly seeing that with the kind of liberal creative groups in Russia. Actually, journalistic, Western journalistic accounts of the parade for the May 9th uh, celebration of the victory in World War II of uh, Russia over, over the Nazi and the, the thousands of people in Moscow in the streets, at least according to this journalistic account from the West, many of the people there were actually the people that you are describing, people working in, in public sector jobs whose bosses were forcing, pushing them to attend the demonstration if they want, didn't want to lose their job in the, the public sector or semi-public sector. I think one of the beauties of your work, not only the book, but also the, the articles, is that you, you just don't only launch a counterintuitive and provocative hypothesis, but you support it with rigorous data, especially at regional level. And here is what I would like to ask you, because during the last two decades, there have been quite some substantial work trying to explain Russian regional differences in economic growth, entrepreneurial mentality or small and little-sized firms, economic growth and, and so on. But most of the explanations, at least, and the ones that we are conducting here at the Quality of Government Institute in Gothenburg, emphasize precisely the quality of government, the impartiality of the institutions, the role of, uh, of meritocracy in the, in the bureaucracy and this kind of uh, arguments, let's call it institutionalist, but you are providing more a society explanation of that. So who, what would you say to the people who argue that actually what explains Russian differences is that in some places they have, some regions have better institutions, higher uh, quality of government, higher quality of, of governance uh, than, than others? So what I would say, I would respond with a great title, or I think it was part of a title of a paper from 20-odd years ago by Kopstein and Ryle, explaining the why of the why. 
we tend to, for instance, say, well, the institutions function well in particular regions because for particular institutional configuration or demand for, for certain good public services, but we don't step back and, and ask why is it that there is in this particular region higher demand for uh, you know more transparent institutions for instance right or why is there greater or lesser trust for putin so if we're saying that people who trust um, believe in a strong leader for instance they as some recent public opinion surveys will tell us they tend to endorse the modern autocracy so i'm trying to step encourage us to step back and ask what is it that makes for a liberal in Russia? What is it that makes a region that tends to have those kinds of institutions beyond the kind of temporary proximate variables that we tend to work on? And my account is very much, yes, social structure, as you, as you point out. It takes us to these long-term mechanisms of reproduction that then account for a lot of these different variations that whether it's economists or economists or political scientists are now grappling with. But I take us one step back. Of course, we have to know when to stop in history. But certainly this kind of late 19th century period is, I think, a very, very important one to study in terms of the origin of this kind of deep societal and regional divisions that we observe Russia now and in some ways give, that allow, give us some hope about the future of democracy in Russia, but also kind of give us reasons for perhaps being not very optimistic. Because if you look at the other side of the story, we're talking about a deeply divided society, divisions that never disappeared. And let's conclude our discussion precisely talking about this other side. And we're going to step a little bit outside your book, just a little bit, because in your book you talk about uh, the comparison between Hungary and Russia. And of course, in the minds of all of us is uh, the similarities between Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin. And you, in your book, depict very nicely how this Russian minority from decades ago has been keeping alive the flame of liberty in the country, but we need to see also the minority or the majority that has kept alive the flame of autocracy. And of course, we cannot forget that they are extreme cases, even if they are not comparable, Orban and Putin, but we can see a kind of national populistic backlash in uh, all democracies. So. How do you think your your book, your insights on the importance of history might help us to understand this development that we see in democracies, this kind of churn of uh, autocratic leaders or authoritarianism or a kind of uh, diminishment or tiredness or I don't know how to call it, crisis of, of, of democratic uh, values? So I think this is a really extremely important question. I think my book is a story about democracy and autocracy, but it's also a story of inequality. And Hungary is a good case of what I call bimodal societies. And I think Latin American countries, we can think of certainly some very deeply divided societies, historically so. And, and Hungary, and even the, the Britain where I live now, or, you know, I'm, I've been here for a good few years, and uh, the class system that I'm, I'm familiar with, all of these things in a particular historical period in time might trigger the kind of processes that you are describing, you know, the support for 
populism and that is in turn to be partly explained or at least a significant part of the story is in the historical patterns of inequalities in these societies and certainly Hungary for me was a very revelatory case because we thought of Hungary in the 19, late 1980s as kind of one of those liberalizing communist states. It received a lot of EU aid. There was a lot of euphoria. But if you read the work of uh, the political scientist and historian Andrew Janos, he was writing in the 1980s, almost anticipating the rise of urbanism because he described those historical inequalities, a large peasant society with significant uh, deference to the landed aristocracy and landed elements in Hungarian society. And these things didn't disappear with communism in Hungary. So we need to sort of look beyond the assumptions that we have, whether it's in communist society or indeed in Western democracies, and look at the deep social divisions that never disappeared, even with the advent of the welfare state, and that are now kind of resurfacing in this new political and global environment. I mean, we need to go back to history to really unpack those deep social divisions. I think this is a great way of, of finishing this discussion. We have to look at history to try to understand the most present issues. It has been a pleasure talking to you, Tomila. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 